0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style, so if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today.
0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, Robert Christgau, the Dean of American Rock Critics, joins Nate to discuss his books, Is It Still Good to You?" and Book Reports. In this episode, Robert and Nate discuss the role of criticism in popular music, the concept of semi-popular music, YouTube versus Spotify, blackface minstrelsy, and more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. Today, I've had the honor of being joined by the Dean of American Rock Critics, Robert Christgau. The books are Is It Still Good to You? and Book Reports. Robert, welcome.
3: Hiya. Glad to do it.
2: Cool. And so, you know, I've, rock criticism is a unique thing, and and I I want to talk about the books, but I also want to have a meta conversation about the role of the rock critic in the business of, of music. And so it's uh,
3: evolved over, it's been a long time now (laughs) and it's uh, evolved, but go ahead.
2: Absolutely. And you, you're the one person basically who's been doing it since the beginning, 1967.
3: I would know Greel, no Greel. Well, Greel is almost as early. And, uh, uh, he do, But he does it in a very different way. He's not as comprehensive as I am.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He does more big think pieces, and, and you have been in the trenches keeping up with the latest music. You know, I'm 20-something years younger than you and fell way behind, so it's um, a role that, as a young, callow youth, I had a lot of disrespect for. But the way you've done it, I've come to respect and admire simply because, in a way, the way you taught yourself to listen as a, as a critic is pretty prescient for the environment everybody's finding themselves in now where we're all inundated with music. And what I'm referring to is your struggle early on with what Little Wayne calls out, you know, if you're listening to music for pleasure and you're paying for it, you've got a different sort of critical acuity than if you're inundated with music, you're being paid to try to analyze in the flood. So I've been fascinated with that. Talk a little bit about that and how you taught yourself to deal with that inundation of tunes.
3: Well, you know, I, I have to say, um there wasn't a lot of self-education involved Uh, i I, the first consumer guide appeared in the voice uh, just about 50 years ago today more i mean more or less it was sometime in the month of july uh 69 um uh and but that related that followed from what i was already doing so i live with a rock critic named ellen willis uh, who, at that, by that time, was the first rock critic at The New Yorker. Um, but, uh, but Ellen didn't like to listen the way I listened. Uh, I, I, for starters, I got all these free LPs in the mail. And to be honest with you, I felt an ethical obligation to hear them all. And what them all meant... Uh, in those days was what I mean, does anybody have any notion of how small the fraction is compared to what's available to now when you, when you count SoundCloud and YouTube and all of that stuff, which is completely impossible to track. Um, uh, In this case, it was, there were six or eight or 10 major labels and they sent me all their LPs. Uh, And I thought I should hear them all. Um, uh, And so I went to another apartment. I we lived together on East Eighth Street. I had the old apartment I lived in, but which I'd maintained. Total rent for these two apartments was uh, one hundred and twelve dollars a month for seven rooms, four in hers, three in mine. Uh, uh, and I went. Uh, uh, actually, one hundred and two. Incredible. Uh, 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 And I would go and I would sit in uh, uh, the kitchen, which also had the table, which was my desk uh, in the Ninth Street apartment with uh, a a portable record player, a a changer, uh, on a table or maybe on top of the refrigerator, as I recall. I can't remember excepting like that. And I would stack six LPs on it. And. Uh, and and see what stuck part of that was my theory is that the way you got to like music on the radio which at that time was still a question fm radio so-called progressive radio had hardly begun at that time um you you heard a lot of things You, you put on wmca that was my station or wabc those are the two big am stations in new york and you had it on all the time i always did um in the car when I was driving around Essex County as a reporter in Jersey, but when I wrote, I never turned the fucking radio off. And some things would stick and others wouldn't. And the idea was to find out if I started doing this with these LPs, what happened.
2: And uh, we've you've been documenting it, you know, for over fifty years now and created this body of work, it's eight books and counting, correct?
3: I don't is it eight? Yeah.
2: Yeah, Something I like it is. that. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah.
3: These two, uh, four, so yeah, it is eight. It's eight, including the memoir. Yeah.
2: yeah and, and with the website uh, as a valuable supplement to that. And so it's, it's a really useful tool in this day and age when you can hear almost anything. You know, I kind of get personally offended if I hear of some artist from 60, 70, 80 years ago, and I'm not able to track down a particular song in five minutes with the internet. And
3: Yeah, I was just doing that today. Uh, there's this writer named Bob Stanley. He's a, a, a he's in the St. HN, and he's also a critic who does a lot of compilations for Ace and people over in Great Britain. And in his book, he lists all these rockabilly songs that he loves that I'd never heard of. And I tried to find them on Spotify just today, and I only found about half of them. Universal yeah. jukebox, my, jukebox, my foot.
0: Well, you, know, you have nothing's to.
3: Nothing's universal.
2: It's true. It's true. And Spotify is very limited. It takes. Uh, a little extra effort to track down everything and 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 with the move to streaming away from mp3s it's actually gotten a little harder in the last couple of years and i predict it's going to get harder still and not to get too off topic but then yeah, well like,
3: apparently i mean i don't i don't go to youtube a lot of people go to youtube which some people seem to feel is even a better source than spotify it is I doubt it, it myself it,
2: it absolutely is um it's it's a much better source than spotify sometimes it can be hard to tell what version you're hearing um but sometimes it's not so
3: easy on spotify either
2: Uh, no it's very difficult yeah like why does this herman's hermit song have a lin drum on it is the kind of thing that (laughs) drives a dork like me insane but um youtube is actually better but not to get too far afield i want to i want to talk about the two books you've got two books that basically came out around the same time you've got is it still good to you which is another collection of of rock criticism i guess probably the fourth or fifth and then your first collection of book reviews um what was the difference and 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 i've noticed that there are several book reviews actually that you snuck into is it still good to you and so what was the difference when you compiled those you, what Was well, the look, basic frame of mind difference in that?
3: As I've said, as I say it at, at, at great length and with untoward enthusiasm in the introduction to both of these books, I've loved journalism collections since sixty-three or sixty-four. I was somebody who wanted to be a novelist, discovered the journalism collection, and that was one of the things that convinced me I wanted to be a journalist instead. So Pauline Kael, A.J. Liebling, um, those are two real uh, lodestones uh, in my literary. Develop. And I am, you know, I am a writer. I care about writing. Uh, I, 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 if you told me when I was in college, uh, chafing in my honors English program, that I would end up being a critic instead of a novelist, I would have said, fie on you. But that's the way it worked out. I was better at criticism than I was at fiction. Uh, and But I still wanted to write as well as I could. Um, so. Uh, uh, and, 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 and moreover, I wanted to write, not, I wanted to write journalism that was stood, that, that, that would still hold up as writing 20 years or 30 years later, um, or 50 <laughs> now we're up to, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, I have. Um, and so essentially when I decided to quit my job at, uh, at NYU, um, Uh, I immediately began thinking about collections, which had been on my mind, but which I didn't have time to work on. Uh, And I just started, because of my website, uh, which would not exist were it not for the Herculean efforts of my friend Tom Hull, who input a lot of that stuff by hand, and then organized fans who input more of it. I mean, some of it was in the computer and just was converted, but a lot of that stuff is pre-computer. And a lot of of uh typing on the part of both tom one of the fastest and most accurate typists i've ever met in my life and a, a bunch of friends some of whom i've met and some of whom i don't even know who they are uh fans um so all that stuff is uh, it, uh, some of that stuff is was converted from from digital sources others was input and I just looked through everything and said, well, what do I remember that's really good? And I spent a long time organizing it. At first, I thought there'd just be one collection. But when I began to see how much there was, um, and I'd always thought that uh, that some of my, I, as a critic, I do write about books, and I write about writing, and I like being able to do that. I like having that authority. And so I just figured out a way to divide it into two different books into my surprise, really, because collections are not easy to sell, even when you're getting paid as little as a university press is going to pay, pay because they still have to put in the investment of the, the, the the publication itself. Um, Ken Whistaker, my editor at Duke university press, uh, and one of the people in the university publishing who really understands popular music and popular music writing. Um, there aren't that many, but there's a few, uh, Lindsay waters at, at Harvard was another who did my Harvard book in 98. Uh, uh, uh he said yeah okay let's do two books so, uh, and as i've told my uh, people at my launches i think i'm probably the only person ever to publish two collections of journalism in the space of a single year ever well, uh,
2: it could could well be true and and as you know as i've spent the last month kind of reading both of them and going back and reading your oh uh, so it really has this feeling like you've been in my head uh for you know, six weeks now. And it's sort of hard for me to pull the two books apart. Um, but I ultimately, the difference is the, the book report, you, you go beyond music. And for this show, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on the book, the music book reviews you did there, but the book reports is a much broader look. And especially um, you look into bohemianism as one of the, the themes of that. always
3: been one of my themes, which I, I began talking about with Ellen Willis, who I've already mentioned, Uh, almost as soon as we were together in 1966, because the hippie thing was just beginning to gather critical mass at that time. Uh, And it was happening in our neighborhood, the Lower East Side, uh, as well as San Francisco when we visited there. So uh, I've been thinking about Bohemia, and she had before um, for all of that time. Um, And uh, whereas she sort of got me started and then Ultimately, after we split up, she uh, mostly devoted herself to feminism. I was very interested, and in, I, I, I've been reading freelance about the history of Bohemia ever since that time, beginning with Malcolm Cowley's Exiles Return, a book I always tell people to read. That was Ellen's book. Um, uh, and, and so uh, And I don't actually think, if there's somebody else who has the knowledge of the literature that I have, I don't know who it is, and I've read the literature uh uh i, I i've I've uh, read many more books than the ones that I wrote write about in here um, uh, and uh and I've given it an enormous amount of thought because my personal life i uh, a i'm i live I still live in the East Village. Uh, I live in what was then a bohemian neighborhood and as happens with bohemian neighborhoods is gentrified, but it still has that bohemian remnant. Um, but never fully identified with Bohemia. And furthermore, I married a, a, a girl who grew up, a woman who grew up in Greenwich Village. Uh, so it's been a very important part of my life. And I, uh, and, and, uh, I feel that, that in book reports, that that section, that's the one thing that, that I mean, I write about politics too, and I, as far as I'm concerned, I do it very well. But, but uh, lots of people write about politics. Not that many people write about Bohemia. And moreover, I believe that almost anybody who's gonna read me has some kind of a connection to Bohemia. Not not everybody, but we're talking 90%. I think Agre- Because absolutely. when young people interested in the arts pass through something like Bohemia in their early 20s, even if they quickly go somewhere else.
2: Absolutely, and that, that sort of cues up the first musical piece I wanna uh, play, which is the New York Dolls' Jet Boy. Yeah.
1: Fly up in the sky
2: And that was the New York Dolls' Jet Boy, and I picked that because that's a group that you've been championing for a long time, and it also fulfills a concept that I think ties into the bohemianism, which is what you call semi-popular music, which the New York Dolls are, to me, like almost a perfect example of. They're, they never sold millions of units, yet they did have a pretty outsized social and musical impact.
3: Right. I don't think they've... The, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is still passed them by, isn't
2: it? That's I believe so, yeah. That, that's...
3: Uh, uh, um but yes uh this is a, a a group that is genuinely beloved by a, 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 a substantial a, a a critical mass kind of audience um tends to be smart they tend to talk to each other um uh and uh, uh i i believe insofar as uh, historical permanence has any meaning at all they're not going to be forgotten uh uh, any more than, I mean, you know, I, I think they'll be remembered as long as, let us say, the Buffalo Springfield, a much more successful band who are in the, Buffalo, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then produced Neil Young and other people. Uh, I, I think my, my I believe in terms of their real, their artistic life, it'll more or less equal. Buffalo that, Springfield didn't actually put out that, that many good, great records, you know, so. Yeah, the,
2: the, the, this- Discography is pretty even between those two, but I I want to talk a little bit more about that concept of the semi-popular artist, which, to my knowledge, you coined. And, and, you know, music criticism in the past had sort of focused on high culture, which, without a lot of worry about what was popular and what wasn't, although, you know, the 19th century opera was. Well,
3: semi-popular is a word that came to me at a party (laughs) after I had half a joint with somebody who wanted to know what it was I did and what I was interested in um uh i'm not a i haven't had that i I'm, I'm not a m- much of a head at all but at that but i don't have any doubt really that the loosening that happens under those circumstances helped that word pop into my head and as soon as i it popped out of my mouth but i you know at the moment I thought of it and i've never forgotten it and basically it's music that that formally aspires to the values and pleasures of genuinely popular pop music without ever becoming massively popular itself except <laughs> when it does which does happen um um uh the dolls or a, um, a letter uh, are are aren't as good an example as another quintessential uh semi-popular band the ramones who, to everyone's astonishment, including perhaps theirs, ended up having a career that lasted more than 20 years and having imagined this non-existent audience of people all over America who would identify with their black leather jackets and fast, snappy songs, uh, which seemed really silly. They were, they were on the Lower East Side. They were playing a CBGB. That's what they did. Well, in fact, they then toured for 20 years, playing to audiences all over America that fit that description exactly.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah, it packed stadiums in Brazil, and if you go to see a baseball game, basically anywhere in America you, you, today, you've got a good chance hey ho, let's football. go.. That's yeah. Right. yeah, and 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 you know, so to me, that concept of, of semi-popular artists is sort of a carryover because you started in Esquire and and which had a sort of middlebrow highbrow pretensions of covering music before yeah, well.
3: They were paying. They, yeah, that that was that Esquire kind of for me was the ideal, not the New Yorker. Esquire, um, it's where Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer were worked, and um, those were people I really liked and cared about. Um, uh, was a little uh, more irreverent uh, than the New Yorker was, especially back then. Um, uh, and and uh, and they, uh, I, I wrote a piece of reportage. Uh, for Clay Felker's New York Magazine, Clay Felker, uh, well, I won't go into that, but he was uh, had an Esquire connection. Uh it was a very, very successful piece called Beth Ann and Macrobioticism. It got me book offers, all kinds of stuff, much of which didn't happen, but Esquire called me up and asked me if I wanted to work there. And for a couple of years, I did until... Uh, until until the jazzbo editor figured I really was not going to give up on this rock and roll stuff uh, he, he so I assigned mean, he had heard in, in 68 which was the first well of the rock is dead uh, years that rock was dying and he asked me to write a piece about why rock was dying and I wrote a piece about why rock wasn't dying and he fired me
2: and <laughs> straightforward enough but you you at that point you're creating a niche because people had taken People have been criticizing concert music, classical music, in a serious way for a long time. By that point, they'd been criticizing jazz and, and to some extent, folk music in a serious way for a couple of decades. And you're one of the first to criticize pop and rock music in a serious way. And obviously, they didn't quite accept it. But then you move on to The Village Voice and have uh, a weekly platform to basically just review records.
3: Well, and do and write about whatever else I wanted. The Village Voice was a wonderful place to work. and uh once I established myself there uh especially as an editor, which started in seventy four uh, and because in fact our pop music coverage was not very good um it's not as good as it should have been um and uh I could see that there was this enormous opportunity to find to, to there were all these smart people writing about the music by then and Rolling Stone and cream especially um as well as just people I knew uh uh, and and uh, and and uh, they were using a lot of schmoes in the, in the music section for the most part. I mean, there were definitely exceptions, starting with Gary Giddens, the greatest jazz critic who ever lived, uh, uh, but Patrick Carr, Jeffrey Stokes, a few other people I don't want to dismiss here um, who I inherited. Um, but but uh, 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 I saw that, that the chance was to, to do so much more Beginning by covering black popular music, <laughs> my first, my first, uh, uh, the first section I edited was about the Jackson Five at Madison Square Garden by Vince Aletti, later became the great disco doyen and now writes about photography mostly for the New Yorker. Uh, 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 I, 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 I was always one of the things that always offended me about about rock criticism in the '60s is how it ignored soul music. Was, as it was then called. Um, and I made it, and that always I always, that was part of my program with myself from the very beginning, although it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be, but I did learn to do it. Um, and uh, as soon as I got to The Voice, I looked for people who could do that as well and, and did what I could to emphasize it um, in that big audience context.
2: And that's one of the classic examples to me of a, a fight where you were basically paddling against the tide. There there's this you know desegregation of music throughout you know from the late '40s all the way to the mid '60s, and then it quickly resegregated. You know the difference between the Tammy Show and Monterey, and then the even bigger racial divide.
3: I wrote a piece about the Monterey Pop Festival for Esquire, um, that I deliberately led with Otis Redding. Um, one of the few black artists um, to be featured there. Um, uh, but I, I mean, what, what uh, the way I would historicize it is to say that, uh, that for what, when, as long as it was AM radio where that was the main source, which through 68, it basically was, um, there was plenty of integration. And, um, and but then so called progressive radio started and all of a sudden all all the the, the the black hits were let up because that was too pop. It wasn't rock. Rock had a by that time that notion had a weight to it and, and a weight it deserved sometimes. But it wasn't the only good thing that was happening in popular music. Plus plus it was at that very moment that James Brown was completely transforming popular music. I mean you know, I love Chuck Berry, and I love the Beatles. Uh, um, I probably like them more than I like James Brown. But who is the most important musician in this tradition? Without any question, James Brown. Without any question. Completely reorganized the ears of America. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, but, and for just that reason, uh, uh, white America had a lot of trouble hearing what he was doing. It all sounded the same to them. It sounded the same to me, too. But yeah, no. while to learn to hear that, and 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 it was partly due to the fact that I had uh, even in the mid seventies before Nelson George and 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 Greg Tate uh, and Carol Cooper uh, really sp- uh, surfaced at the Voice that they were the really the stalwarts of the black music coverage of the African American who wrote about it anyway. Um, uh, but there was a guy named Pablo Guzman who had worked, been in the Young Lords, and he was an ambitious guy. And he would come up and uh, and and just jaw. He was the person who told me, made me go back and listen to um, to to Brown plus uh, uh, plus George Clinton, who a few visionary uh, white critics on the West Coast uh, really heard early. I and I had to catch up with him as well.
2: And that's one thing I really appreciate about reading your ovra is the way you adjust on the fly and yet you leave the, your opinions there. I like you know in the introduction I think is it still good to you you talk about how you um, change things to you make corrections to correct matters of fact, but you do not change your opinions. And so things like, well, uh,
3: Yeah, I mean, insofar as I'm wrong, and it happens occasionally, and of course what wrong means is not wrong about some absolute aesthetic. Although, I mean, in certain cases I would make an argument of that sort. My only job is to explain why I like something that I like, as a smart person who really knows a lot about music and has heard a lot of music, and to explain why it is I actually like it. (laughs) And and, uh, that's what I've always... And that's what I, as an editor, I was the editor, music editor of The Voice from 74 to the end of 84. And that's what I always try to tell writers. When I taught writing, I told them the same thing. When people like you would come up and say, What do I do? I say, First, just find out what you really like and then figure out why you really like it and try to put it in an entertaining and intelligent and concise way. That's the job, as far as I'm concerned.
2: And that allowed you the freedom to then modify your. Statements as your opinions changed. Now, right from the beginning, you were pretty brutal on Jimi Hendrix uh, in that Monterey review. Psychedelic, I Uncle Tom. still
3: think that was a shit performance. <laughs> I think that to this day, I have watched it, I have listened to it, because so many people think it's it. He, I mean, what it was a shit musical performance. What I did not understand, and what I fully understand, having devoted as much attention to it did it? because initially I call him a psychedelic uncle tom uh uh, uh which I you know that's not li- I I said that so it's in my it's in my work but um what I what, what I didn't understand at all wh- um was how he was playing that all white crowd <laughs> that uh in a way that he was sure would attract their attention he was sensationalizing himself uh, in a way that would make him a star faster, and uh, uh, and I still don't think he played very well that night. And and, and I've listened a lot. And um, that's
2: a fair but, assessment. And I, I, I just want to make one sneak one point Short. in there um and i think you're getting exactly onto it because his song selection on that you know night with the dylan covers and stuff and 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 songs the wild thing and hey joe songs that the crowd would be familiar with but it also ended up that ended up being the trap that hendrix ended up suffering from and trying to escape i mean
3: that's correct you know, exactly right and it's i wouldn't be surprised if the difficulty of escaping it and his and his horrible manager was mike jeffrey right yeah I'm getting confused uh um uh uh could very well be the reason he died so young and so unnecessarily. Um, uh, I think uh he was very depressed and frustrated about it that and I've read biographies I mean that certainly is the indication, although it was also just a horrible accident, you know, it was yeah, not a suicide. It was uh, somebody who did too many drugs and vomited in the wrong way. But
2: and still, and didn't, and didn't have people who knew what they were doing to take care of him. That's right. Um, That's right. You know, but
3: and so, uh, yes, and 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 you know, I I also, as it happens, I mean, I I kind of, lo- I mean, I I think I like that first record, although not as much as I do now. Um, the Second record, I continue to think is not a terribly good record, but Electric Ladyland, and that was only two years later. I mean, that was a motherfucker. And I, you know, I have a lot of, um, I listened to a lot of jazz in college, and although I have no, I, I don't have the the formal chops to be able to describe what I hear, I do hear it. Um, and, uh, um, and I know, and so I understood by the time of electric Ladyland how remarkable as improvisations were in a, in a world where there were an enormous number of improvisations that weren't remarkable at all, uh, where that was considered sort of the net plus ultra of you. That's what being progressive was about. That's what FM radio thought it was doing. It was, you know, you know, giving respect to all of those bad Steve Sill solos. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, and uh, um, I mean, the, he did one of the first jam records with Cooper and
2: one of the Bloomfield. First, yeah, Michael Bloomfield. Yeah, right. Super right. Session. Yeah, Bloomfield
3: was better. Um, How uh, much? Super session. But, but, uh, but in addition, you know, <laughs> they just went in there and jammed. They didn't really conceive it at all. Those, those were pretty good players. Uh, and Bloomfield was a great player. Uh, I think uh, Stills not uh, became better of course
2: yeah and the still not, side not
3: without talent just Steve Stills but
2: yeah the still side <laughs> not the giant he said to be <laughs> more song oriented um, but I want right. to play play our next song real quick and this is this is one uh, that you introduced me to uh, this is Problem Solver by Lil Wayne Mom,
0: yeah. Yeah. That, boy's so that
1: boy's so that so shit on that so that Boy, so get him he didn't count no more prime on the prime solve he didn't count no more problems on the prime solve yeah. he didn't count no more problems on the prime solve yeah. click click solve he didn't count no more problems
2: that was a little problem solver which is as uh, pretty jarring contrast from what we're talking about but i wanted to put it in there because because that to me is a perfect example of somebody that i've i've been peripherally aware of i mean i'm a gen xer i was into the second wave of hip-hop from run dmc all the way through the uh tribe called quest era dropped out for the gangster stuff and and i'd heard the name little wayne and everything but it's not until i i uh had the chance to follow you know you're a great guidepost to little Wayne because this is somebody who's literally dumping hundreds of songs out on the internet at one point that
3: that, that that period that period was one of the most remarkable uh outflows of creativity in the whole history of this music as far as i'm concerned Uh, you know before then he had his limitations recently he's been repeating himself and hasn't been so great but when it, that mixtape era and they were, were cu- culminating in the quarter three, which a record, that's well, a record I think I gave an A minus to it at the beginning, uh, um, because sometimes you just have to come in there, you know. Uh, I, I, it's it's very hard. One one thing I learned as an editor is assigning the follow up to a great album is a very very perilous thing to do it is very hard to write a review on deadline of the follow-up to a great album you just don't have the time to acclimate yourself to what it is and you and and it is just about impossible to extricate its it, it from what had it had just been what this artist had just been um, and so in the case of the Carter 3 I couldn't do it I mean, I, I did allow—I did allow myself a certain amount of leeway doing that kind of work. Um, I, I, I tried not to uh, jump the gun on things, and occasionally, I—I re- I mean, I uh, my last expert witness, I wrote about this new Mekons album. The Mekons are a band I adore. I kept trying to love that record. I still don't. I think it's. It's good, but it's not as what they're capable of. Well, this was the same sort of thing. And now, I mean, now I've come to regard the Carter three as his masterpiece. It's like it it takes everything that he'd been doing on the mixtapes only and shapes it better. Um, uh, it, it's a really remarkable piece of work
2: and that's that to me epitomizes something they openly have struggled with throughout your work as a critic is that, to really understand great music even great popular music it takes some time and and you need to let it soak in and if you're doing reviews on a deadline it's you know while the the market is hot for the new product that's very difficult and that's basically an impossible contradiction and you acknowledge that and just muddle through anyway so right
3: uh, at rolling stone you know you know uh, uh, when the various kinds of uh, bootlegging and they're going to steal our music uh, if we let them have it there was a thing that happened um uh i i guess it probably still happens sometimes uh where they, uh, you would uh, the journalist would be allowed to go listen to the record maybe even listen to it twice <laughs> and perhaps, and take notes but could not walk out with the music <laughs> and no. they had to do the re- they had to do the review from that and because everything is deadline oriented I mean, everything is what's hot, what's new, in in uh, magazine journalism, and even that's even truer, really, in online journalism. Uh, uh, it, it means that a lot of a lot of really inadequate stuff gets written about that music. I mean, so to the extent where there, at some some online places, they do what they isn't it called first takes, where they essentially they listen to the record and take notes and they print that without claiming that it's the final thing that's actually a more honest way of doing it than what I just described where where I'm, I'm not gonna name any names but the the the, the at Rolling Stone where I, I just I had a gig there for about a year and a half um, after the voice was purchased uh, by the hounds of Phoenix and I got fired um,
2: uh, and that was in 2006 right
3: that's right yeah all right well this would have been 2006 2007 I just you know i i i got i I was very well paid at rolling stone i wrote what they you know they said you have to review this r kelly album and i i figured out ways to really insult the motherfucker because my attitude was never review him again after i saw that tape on the online in 2004 um uh but you know it was my job so i did it and i managed to hit him pretty hard while i did without cheating the music um uh in any case uh I would not do that. I would not go in to the studio and take notes and write the review. I just said no. And uh, I would respect.
2: Yeah, and another pitfall of that that I think I respect you a lot for avoiding was the Rolling Stone and, and some really good critics like Dave Marsh, for one, would have sort of an aesthetic agenda. you know, And, and he, for a while, was pushing Heartland Rock. And I remember as a young punk rocker being just – who was also obsessively – uh, fascinated with the rockin- Rolling Stone record guide in 83. You know, I'm, I love Dave Marsh, and I'm I'm letting him build my musical taste, but then I'd read him make this unflattering comparison between, say, Graham Parker and Iggy Pop. And to me, there was no comparison between, you know, the god of punk, Iggy Pop, and Graham Parker, who's some fusty-duddy old dude. So I, I admire that you... That's not really fair either. Graham oh, Parker
3: no. was really good there for about... A- for about, th- I mean, he really—he started repeating himself much too early. But sure, and, and, but he's and, not an and his icon. Spiritual limita- his spiritual limitation, spiritual limitation, has really began. Well, it's not like Iggy Pop has no spiritual limitations. Well, for so sure. <laughs> uh, 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 and in fact, I don't think Iggy Pop has done very a whole lot of great music since 1980 either.
2: No, I no, and, and and most people, uh, you know, I've always sort of just judged people on their initial explosion and if somebody manages to be creative over the long term like muddy waters or neil young that's just gravy um but i want to talk a little bit about the role of the critic and creating a canon and you know an in introduction is it's still good to you you kind of run through what you call the the titans of rock which are you know pretty conventional choices but solid ones and and well reasoned and most of them you've talked about but there's one that you omit and you apologize for it and most of the ones you admitted in previous collections, you've gotten to. But I've become really fascinated with the great Louis Jordan. And so I'd like to get you to talk a little bit about what... Oh would, well, yeah, but
3: well, Louis Jordan is certainly in my pantheon.
2: Oh, absolutely. You just haven't written about him. So I want to get you a little teaser of, of, of what you would say about Louis Jordan when you do write a piece about him.
3: On the one hand, Louis Jordan was the great precursor of what became rock and roll, the 40s precursor. He was a hit maker enormous in the black community but with with pop crossovers um, he was comic um, with a, uh, uh, a, a he also played the saxophone so there was certain jazziness to what he did but it was definitely not uh, virtuoso saxophone um, he was seldom soulful um, uh, he was more of a humorist than anything else um, and uh, uh and I would say, and, and and when when I looked into Louis Jordan, didn't, you don't have to look in very hard. His father was a professional musician, who worked with a minstrel show. Did he work in blackface? I don't recall. Um, many many African American performers did work in blackface in the twentieth century. Supposedly, blackface minstrelsy ends in the end of the nineteenth century. That's complete hooey, and I, and I don't think people believe it anymore. Um, used to though. Uh, and 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 uh, so all of, all of which is just to say that he his father was an entertainer um, who it could be claimed burlesqued the black experience. But the fact of the matter is but by the time I mean the reason Mr C. survived into the 20th century is not because white audiences liked it. It was because I mean not primarily it's not as if there weren't some, but because black audiences liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so he was burles- he was burlesking the black experience for black audiences. And I think all of that enters into what Louis Jordan achieved and and some and at some point I may try to write about exactly how I think that plays out. Uh it's complicated.
2: I I would love to read that cuz the sort of popular eclipse of louis jordan is something that's fascinating to me having come to his music pretty late and been blown away then by the scope and accomplishment of it uh and, and also realizing how monumentally popular he was in the 40s uh and yet uh, he, you know,
3: it, well, it, uh, everything i've said is about its, his complexity not about his success or failure he yeah. was great of, yeah, of I, that of that there is no fucking doubt. he was great um, and, but and the, what the same. exact lineaments of that greatness? Its complications. That's what's hard to pin yeah. down. And my guess is that one reason people don't write about it is that they're scared of it, <laughs> or I, I that think they so really, or that too. they really don't approve. I think a lot of them really don't approve, and that's fucked.
2: Yeah, because he was he was funny, and and you know what? I mean, I'm just not thoughtful to... though,
3: right? Right, he I, I mean, there it, were there, there yeah. were other there were other black artists with pop crossover, into, especially two different groups, the the um, the Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers. Uh, they were also people who had black arti- artists who had popular success in the 40s, as was Nat King Cole, yet another example of who I write about in my Harvard collection. Uh, uh, growing up all wrong, but the Mills Brothers and the Ink Spots were soulful in very different ways um and made enduring music even though I, could, I I'm reminding myself that I probably haven't heard the Mills Brothers in a couple of years but they were really good yeah. uh uh and and uh, and plus of course there were all kinds of individual exceptions um but uh, but as people with bodies of work those are people with bodies of work that compare not quite as large uh, to Louis Jordan's
2: yeah and and I was just sort of fascinated by looking at Facebook and and what Artists have Facebook groups, and you know Robert Johnson, for example, has literally a million Facebook followers or likes. And Louis Jordan has less than three hundred, I think. The last, the best group really? I can find less than a thousand, definitely. And so, really, really, oh,
3: that, I mean, like, uh, the Robert Johnson stuff thing doesn't. You know, are, are you familiar with Elijah Walls? But of course, about Robert, yeah, Robert I've, I've, Robert interviewed, yeah Cause, I've interviewed. Yeah, because one of the Elijah things because one of the things Elijah Wall writes about is that far from being the Devil propitiating, let's call it uh, um, a tortured soul that people often talk about him as being. That a lot, a lot of the reasons uh, he was such a big deal was that he lifted pop tricks from uh, uh, the, uh, the, the the Chicago uh, jump. What was the name of the what is the genre called? I also the, don't remember the name of the label. There was one big one Bluebird big label thinking guy.
2: Thinking of the Bluebird gang in Yeah, Chicago. the Blue,
3: yes, Bluebird, exactly, for, of, yeah. of that of of that world. He he uh you know, he uh, he robbed those guys and and made it much I mean as far as I, I, I I've never written about Robert Johnson because I because I found myself so uh intimidated by the fact that I don't uh, I don't feel his spiritual depth the way I'm expected to and when I read Elijah and then and, and I put him on recently and I realized and I can certainly hear, suddenly hear what Elijah was talking about and and that in addition to all of that stuff which I'm perfectly ready to concede is probably there even if it doesn't move me um, uh, he uh, he cared a lot about melody and clarity and stuff that other blues people who are Very admirable in their own ways, say Skip James did not.
2: And so let's throw in a a Louis Jordan song real quick. This is my favorite Louis Jordan song, Saturday Night Fish Fry.
1: Can understand just what I mean. Now, all through the week, it's quiet as a mouse, but on Saturday night, they go from house to house. You don't have to pay the usual admission if you're a cook or a waiter or a good musician. So, if you happen to be just passing by, stopping at the Saturday night fish fry, everybody It everybody rocking you never see that and shopping till the break.
2: That was a great Louis Jordan Saturday night fish fry. And I, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Legend Wald because we had him on the show. That was to me a really rel- revelatory book. Um, revisionist but still appreciating Robert Johnson and and uh, Yeah, you wrote
3: that stupid book about the Beatles. Don't ever forget. Uh, that. I mean, I love Elijah a lot, but I hate that book.
2: Uh, I, I actually liked that book a lot. And, and I don't think it was about the Beatles. I talked about that show. It was more about Paul Whiteman and the history of of pop synthesis. But that's Have you uh, listen to Paul Whiteman? Oh, yeah, I've, I've been reading Giddens' think, Bing Crosby book and, and really well, Bing, diving uh, into but Paul but that's a Weidman. different matter. That's a different sure, matter. Sure, uh, and, Bing Crosby's a different
3: matter than Paul Whiteman. Yeah. But I mean, was, I'm sorry, Elijah. I don't, Paul Whiteman isn't any fun anymore.
2: Well, I, I don't think he was making that case at all. I, I think he was just talking about the way music synthesized. But that's either here or there. I want to talk about your books. Well, I've got you, and, and it would be fun to have you on with Elijah sometime um, and, and, and have a little throwdown there. But one of the, like, the canon creation is is one role, and then the political is another. You know, your your book reports you focus on bohemianism and politics, and I think we covered the race politics a little bit. Um, and and to me, you know, you were battling the resegregation of music, which wasn't just coming from FM radio. I've talked to people that worked at Rolling Stone in that period. Oh they yeah,
3: were, they know, they were they were. I mean they I mean they did have their tokens, but they were not good about it.
2: No, and essentially the argument was, well, we put a black guy on the cover and it sold a third as many as when we did, you know, put John Lennon on the cover. And so it was a, a marketplace decision. And I I can understand that, um, but I don't admire it. And the, the fact that you kept beating the drum for black music and as it evolved, you know, black artists were a little slow to pick up on the album format. You know, it wasn't until... Right, but- that's right,
3: well, and that had to do with the economics of uh, their target market, which was not an album buying market.
2: And 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 you know, and it takes Marvin Gaye rebelling against the Motown system to produce what's going on, and then Stevie Wonder's off and running and and everything. But I think ultimately, from the post hip hop perspective, you've been vindicated on that utterly. And and the James. Well, R- I didn't need to be vindicated, frankly, but but thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, uh,
3: I mean, well, you know, I, you know, yeah. uh, the, I mean, see, I, I one reason I, I, I was very early on hip hop, um, uh, and uh, the reason for that is simple. It's that Pablo Guzman, and and uh, his uh, and Joe McEwen and a few other people had really convinced me to immerse in James Brown until I got it, and I would gotten it. And the reason I think James Brown is the most important musician in this entire tradition is that, as Jonathan Leitham says in his uh, great profile uh, of, of, of Brown that appeared about just about six months before Brown died in Rolling Stone, signed by uh, none other than my old friend uh, and former voice music editor, Joe Levy, um, um, the, uh, 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 the, the, he changed the way everybody in America heard rhythm. They don't know it, <laughs> but he changed it anyway. Um, uh, and as important as the, what I like to call the foregrounding of the beat in fifties rock and roll music. And the reason it was called the big beat, et cetera. Um, as important as that was, it was James Brown who then, and in the, in the famous things said, every instrument is a drum. Um, uh, and, uh, and people started to make music as if that was the case. And I, I know people like, like, like Greg Tate, the the great critic who started working at the voice in 81, uh, uh, black critic, uh, um, he said that he believes that the Ramones were part of that too, hmm. even though the Ramones, even though the Ramones, uh, uh, attitude towards rhythm was in some ways diametrically opposite to what James Brown was because, uh, they too had a different groove. They changed the groove of the music.
1: Yeah. Tommy Ramone,
3: Tommy Ramone turns out to be one of the most important musicians in the history of the music. And like Maureen Tucker before him, but better, um, uh, uh, teaches himself to play drums can only do so much and but does it with such ferocity and dedication that when he's replaced by a much more accomplished drummer named Marky, who becomes Marky Ramone Mark Bell, Marky Ramone has said that it took him months to learn how to play nothing but eighths
2: it took him months, it was really hard yeah <laughs> uh, and, uh, and... I, I, and they're doing it in a context in which each instrument And it required
3: a lot of physical physical endurance too.
2: I'm sure. And 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 they're doing it in a context where each instrument is basically playing part of a drum or, or part of the rhythm. Like the, the so that the net effect of the Ramones is one drum kit.
3: Um, I know.
2: Yeah, which is fascinating. Band. Holy yeah. shit were they great. <laughs> and I wanna I want while while I still well, talking, okay. I wanna do one last thing. You start the um, book reports off with a with a Sort of, I'm not sure. Was it New York Review Books? It's a New York Review Book style piece on called "In Search of Jim Crow." It was Los Angeles. That's right. It it
3: was no, no, no. It it appeared in the Believer. Ah, that's right. Yeah, and um, Um, I I I was assigned to 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 do it by um a magazine that uh, Henry had called. I think it's called Transition. Henry Louis Gates, at a certain point, was. He sort of called me up and suckered me and I how can you say no to Henry Louis Gates? But then uh when I wrote I'd written about two thirds of it, I I gave it I gave it to his substitute and he I was told, Well, we're not paying you, but you can say whatever you want. I wrote the first two thirds of the piece, I handed it in and I couldn't say that. <laughs> 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 it wasn't supposedly that. They didn't like my attitude it was that no one would know what I was talking about. I had to explain what this was. I had to explain what that was. I just told them to go fuck themselves. Uh, and finished it, and eventually the believer published it.
2: And and it's basically a roundup of about half a dozen or so, maybe more than that, probably a full dozen of all the books you mentioned of various pieces about blackface minstrelry, minstrelsy, in the role, uh, an evolution of American music. And it seemed like there was sort of a boom in that from the mid '90s through the mid mid 'noughts, where there was a lot of people taking. There were, there were
3: a bunch of people writing books about it. That's correct. I, I I I can't remember the exact number of books I dealt with. I guess it was eight or ten, probably four or five of which were really crucial. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, w- once again, it was, I mean, I got interested when I got interested in in, in Emmett Miller, uh, who was this, uh, who was the guy who did the version of Singing the Blues that H- Hank Williams ripped off. Sick Blues, uh, to, yeah. To his, to, his, to his eternal credit, don't get me wrong. That's a great version of Singing Yeah. Uh, it's not Singing the Blues, I don't mean that. No, It's Sick Blues. Uh, lovesick Blues, blues right. Singing the blues, this guy Mitchell, a forgotten great record. You know that record? Great
2: record. I do know that record. Yeah.
3: And so I wrote this piece that, that's also in my Harvard anthology, gr- uh, Grown Up All Wrong," about about what I heard in this in this blackface performer who was a remarkable singer and performer, and that sort of got me started. Really, thinking about this stuff at that point, there was just one book that anyone knew about by Robert Toll, which I'd been hearing about for years, but had never read, and I started there, and then I branched out. Um, I guess I read about fifteen books altogether to write that piece
2: yeah, and it's an excellent piece, and kind of comes around uh, the the, the you know, ending. I've,
3: had a lot, I've had a lot of academics, including black academics uh, who tell me they teach that piece. Um, I'm uh, proud of that
2: you should be it's 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 an excellent piece and um this has been an excellent hour uh talking to robert Christgau, the dean of american rock critics about his two new collections book reports a music critic on his first love which was reading and is it still good to you 50 years of rock criticism 1967 to 2017 robert thanks so much for coming on the show it was great thank you
0: Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast. This episode wraps up our fifth season. We'll be taking a two-week break and then returning with author Ted Joya on The Birth and Death of the Cool. Is It Still Good to You? 50 Years of Rock Criticism, 1967-2017, to and Book Reports, A Music Critic on His First Love, which was reading, are published by Duke University Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.